0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. In this sermon, we are shown ways that God achieves His purpose and will for our lives through suffering. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Job chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, How to Respond to Suffering.
1: Chapter 1 to begin, we are in a break from the book of Romans where we are studying through verse by verse. That's our normal diet. We believe that's God's intention. Uh, We're in a bit of a break here and looking at some various subjects, uh, topics. So a a few topical sermons. I like to call them doctrinal sermons instead of topical sermons. But this morning, looking at, you see the title in your bulletin if you have it there, How to Respond to Suffering looking at various passages from the Bible. So we're going to begin in Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 20 and 21. And then we'll pray, ask for God's help, and then study this morning. So Job 1, beginning in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Please bow with me. Our Father in heaven, God, we ask for grace right now. God, every grace, everything that it's gonna take for this time to result in us drawing near and imitating Job here, bowing before you in deep, fearful, vibrant, but heartfelt worship. God, I pray that you bring that about. And then God, even beyond that, you you show us in your word that when we worship, you bring about change, that this this double work happens, that Both we honor you, but also our greatest joy comes to us as we seek your face. So, God, please bring this about. God, there are some things we understand that need to happen, and then probably a thousand things we don't understand. God, we know that we need help right now to be alert, be awake, not to just sit here and be distracted. That's a temptation not to have our minds drift off and think of other things and not to be passive in this time, but to lean in and be active, oh God, to to think deeply on your truths, to heed your word, believe your word, respond to your word. And then, oh God, we rely on you for the work that only you can do. If you do not bless, then no spiritual good will happen. And we need that. We want that. We ask for that, oh God. We your sons and daughters draw near to seek your face. We pray, O oh God, show us your glory. And then, O oh God, I ask on behalf of any in the room that has not yet turned to Christ to be saved, has not yet recognized their need, maybe right now thinking that they're okay, God, show them their need, show them the answer, bring them to trust in Christ to be born again. Father, please bless this time for your glory. Help me to preach, teach in a way that pleases you and help all of us, O oh God, to respond and receive. We ask these things through the name of our Savior and the high priest who suffered on our behalf and sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus Christ, amen. Charles Spurgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Spurgeon would speak often of the fact that difficulties that he had endured were like a wave that threw him against a rock, but the rock was God. And he said that he saw the good of God in that, came to anticipate the grace that God would bring through those things. Spurgeon was a man who knew pain. By the way, you can, you can pretty well bank on it. Um, if you have a uh, Christian hero Someone who has been useful, Bible heroes, heroes from the faith throughout church history who have been useful of God, who have accomplished great things, been effective. You can pretty well bank on it. They were prepared by God through afflictions of some kind. It's kind of just a principle in self. Before you're ever going to be useful, we have to be prepared. And part of the way that God prepares us is through Pain and difficulty. Think of, think of God sending Joseph through 13 years of slavery and prison to prepare him for his role of ruling in Egypt. Well, Spurgeon was a man who knew intense difficulties in life. And actually from several different sources, Um, he had about at least four different areas where there were pain and suffering in his life of the kind that if any of those happened to us, we would think of this as a, as a pretty traumatic kind of difficulty. And yet they piled on top of each other in Spurgeon's life. He knew great health problems. He he suffered from a long list of ailments, actually. Rheumatism, swollen kidneys, intense joint pain, which would cause uh, sharp pains throughout his body. At different times, him being bedridden, and his friends say they could hear him crying out to God outside of his bedroom, crying and asking for God to reduce the pain just so he could even think as well as gouts and other ailments. He died an early death. He once said of sickness, he said, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health with the exception of sickness. I said, if some men that I know of could be, only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. He also knew the heartache of intense betrayal. Loneliness being the object of hatred. Spurgeon came on the scene at a, at a time when the church in England was in a, a severe downgrade. That's the word he used. And he came on the scene and was used of God to be an awakening kind of force, to wake up a generation and preach the Bible faithfully. And because of that, he was... Absolutely despised by the elite of society. Uh, If you can imagine a day where people in society even cared enough about biblical things, that there were articles written in the papers about him, deriding him. And then even other pastors hated him. This was a time in European culture when universalism was creeping in and just just an embarrassing lack of seriousness was what prevailed in most churches. And uh, many from these churches and pastors just despised him that he stood so boldly and said such bold things that he took the scriptures seriously, that he called out coldness and error. They hated him for it. There actually came a day when he was kicked out of his Baptist denomination that he was a part of. History records that there was a meeting brought together by the pastors and denominational leaders and a room full of multitudes and multitudes of pastors and these leaders brought forward the motion to kick him out of the denomination and it's recorded that when the vote was taken and passed that a raucous cheering exploded from the room. Can you imagine that hatred spilled over into something even more devastating. A, a third area of, of intense inflict, affliction that he knew came from one particular incident. On a Sunday morning in 1856, when he was 22 years old, The church was meeting in a, in a large music hall because their current facilities could not hold the number of people who were coming to hear the preaching. The seating capacity at the music hall was 10,000. And on this particular Sunday morning, it was pushed significantly past the seating capacity. And one of Spurgeon's enemies came into the back and cried out fire, setting off a panic. In the midst of the panic, a stampeding of people rushing out left seven dead from being trampled to death. The event was so tragic, he never recovered from it. He died at 57, so it happened at age 22. He died at 57 and those closest to him said that even up until his death, it still weighed on him, the the guilt, the turmoil, all of the anxiety and agony that he bore from that. And one close friend even said, had it not been for that one incident, he would not have died this early. Spurgeon lived for decades with intense depression. Intense darkness. Some of some days in the months and years that immediately followed that tragic event, there were days he could not bring himself to even get out of bed. And then even another area of difficulty in his life. He knew family difficulty and affliction as well. He married his wife at the age of 22. The same year as the tragic event earlier in the year. And his twin sons were born the day After that tragic event, there were complications from the delivery. His wife was never able to um, conceive again. And nine years after that, severe complications from all of these things left his wife invalid. Spurgeon lived the majority of his married life to a wife he loved, but who was unable to care for herself, let alone the family. But yet often... He spoke of the fact that the greatest good that God had brought about in his life had come as a result of these afflictions. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Christian, God intends afflictions of various kinds to be one of the ways, not the only, but one of the ways that God works his purposes in us. In the wisdom of God, God has a plan. This, is just, this just astounds my mind. God does not just have a general plan for all Christians that we all live the same kind of thing. But for you specifically... God in his perfect wisdom has plans that he wants to bring about in your life, ways that he wants to use you, and even particular preparations of difficulty that he intends to send you and I through for the purpose of making us holy, preparing us, and working. I mean, we can only understand a few at a time, but dozens, maybe hundreds of good things in our lives. We believe that here. We speak of that here. God has purposes. He wants to work in us and then through us. So if we know that, then how are we to respond to difficulty? How are we to respond to suffering, pain, trials? How are we to respond to those seasons when it's just really obvious it's getting laid on thick? And we know our God is sovereign. See, we, we, we don't buy into that ridiculousness of trying to rob God of his sovereignty by saying things like, well, you know, God wants to help and he would if he could, but you know, he's just doing the best he can. There are some who try to defend the honor of God by robbing him of his sovereignty and making it like, well, God can't do anything. We know the Bible. We know that you will never experience one second of difficulty that did not first filter through the hands of your father. And so when those seasons, or it's weighing on heavy, when those come, what's the right way to respond? How are we to, in a God-honoring, right way, respond to pain, difficulty, suffering, afflictions, trials, trouble of various kinds? Well, I want to look at a biblical overview of that question this morning. And I want to do that by taking us to four main passages, So that's the points that I have will be four main passages underneath those points. If you're a note taker and highly encourage that, I do think today would be the kind of day that some of these places are some pretty helpful things to tuck in your Bible, maybe right in the back for you to reference later on. We'll have some points that then have points and list under them. And I'll try to make those clear. But here is number one, the first passage that we'll consider, Job 1 in these verses that we just read. Job 1 gives us, now not just verses 20 and 21 there, but all of Job 1 and then into Job 2 gives us more than what you might think at first. There's actually a whole theology of suffering that's given to us here. It's not everything that the Bible has to say on the subject, but it actually is a lot some of what we're shown here are things that we speak of often. Now, I'm, I'm going to kind of presuppose that you know most of the story of Job. If you don't, if you're still new to studying the Bible, um, even if you would this afternoon read just the first two chapters of the book of Job, there'll be a lot that, that comes to light here. But the summation is Job loses almost every good gift, every earthly gift from his life. And Job 1 describes for us, shows us behind the scenes in the heavenly world how these things came about. That God is sovereign over all of it. Christian, God is sovereign over your trials and your suffering. It is a part of His orchestrated plan for your life. Every bit of difficulty, But as well as every bit of pleasure has been ordained by God and for his people, he intends it for our good. Now, you've got the whole mystery shown to us here of the fact that God ultimately is ordaining these things and orchestrating. And yet somehow in the mystery Satan is involved. He is given parameters that he's allowed to work within. He has to seek permission. God allows him to do certain things. Satan then goes and somehow convinces men to go and engage in wicked deeds that harm Job's family. You've got all of this coming together. Yet God is sovereign over all of it. God, not the doer of evil, but orchestrating and ordaining all things to bring about his intended purposes. This great mystery. And then we see how Job responds. Part of what we see is the great drama of it all. The great drama of history that we speak of often. What God is doing, what his great purposes are to display his glory to men, angels, and demons. That God shows his greatness even to the angels by how he worked in Job and Job responding well to the circumstances displayed that God is great. This is what God is doing. Along the way, it is helpful to point out other passages show us that Job actually comes to his greatest joy through these things. Now, not on earth. Not great happiness or pleasure on earth, but in the end, Job's everlasting joy is made greater and fuller because of what he endured by responding well. Christian, there's a special kind of glory that we give to God when we worship him while in pain. There's a special kind of glory, there's a special kind of honor that we show to God when in difficulty... We honor him. Friends, the great test of your life is the same test of Job. The great test of your life is, will you glorify God or will you ignore him? Will you resist him? Satan throws the accusation against Job and God. Satan says to God, the only reason why he likes you is because you've made his life cushy. He's got all these nice things. He's wealthy. Of course he likes you. You take that away and Job will curse you to your face. Christian, we have to understand this. The same kind of... Same kind of drama is going to play out in your life as well. Satan is going to make accusations about you that the only reason you come to church, the only reason you pray, the only reason you worship, the only reason you engage in this Christian-y life at all is because of the blessings God has given. But what happens if God removes the blessing? Will you worship him then? Will you bless his name then? The Bible shows us there is a special kind of glory we give to God when in the midst of pain, we imitate Job and we bow and magnify the name of God. And it really reveals things. It really comes down and reveals, do we love God or do we love what God gives us? Do we love God or do we really just love a comfortable kind of life And so long as God gives me the kind of life I want, then I love him because he's given me stuff. The big test comes in those seasons when what happens when some of the earthly blessing is removed? What we show when we worship God in the midst of pain, in suffering, in difficulty, we show that God is more precious to me. God is more precious to me than my health. God is more precious to me than money. God is more precious to me than this, than that. God is more precious to me than even my life. I will serve him though he slay me. That's one of the lines in the book of Job. Job even says, if he strikes me down, I will still magnify his name. Christian, if we only bless the name of God when he acts how we want him to, then that's not really submission. That's not really worship. That's seeing God as the divine butler and his job is to give me the life that I want. But we honor him as the sovereign Lord when even in pain we bow. Job shows us how to treat God as the God with all supremacy that he is. How does he do that? Let me, let me show you three ways that Job does it here. Three ways that Job responds for us to imitate. The first is just simply the act of bowing And worshiping. It's a significant thing, Christian. When in pain, maybe even still weeping from the news we were just told, when we fall on our knees and either in prayer or in a declaration or in song, we cry out something that blesses the name of God. It is a decisive kind of victory to stop and sing. Don't think that's a meaningless kind of thing. Angels are watching, the demons see, in the midst of pain to stop, even if we're not all the way there in our hearts, if you understand what I mean. I don't mean fake it. Never let us fake it. But there are times where we want to worship, but our heart's not all the way there yet. There are times we're falling on our face, crying out something and begging for God's help. We are both glorifying and seeking for our heart to get to the right place. That's a decisive kind of victory to bless the name of God in the midst of this. So this is the first. The second way is that in Job's worship, he acknowledges the righteousness of God in his suffering. This is a big point. This is why the book of Job is so critical. One of the the big important places of the Bible, there's big theology here. Job acknowledges, Job states with his lips that God has done nothing wrong. And friends, the reason why that's so important is because we know that's one of the big temptations that happens in our hearts, isn't it? One of the big temptations that goes on in our heart is the internal dilemma we have. Our prideful hearts want to claim that we deserve blessing from God, but I don't deserve this. Our hearts may want to charge God with wrong. We want to say that it's not fair. We want to think that God owes us better than this. We want to accusatively ask questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? As if we're good and God is bringing bad. R.C. Sproul once said, if anybody ever asks you, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is that only happened once and he volunteered. Jesus. But we want to accuse God of wrong. But we worship God. We give him glory by acknowledging his righteousness, that he is doing nothing wrong when suffering comes to us. Here's how Job, inspired by the Holy Spirit, here's how he responds in his worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, here's the truth in that. The man angry with God because of difficulty come into his life. He says things like, this isn't fair. God took my house. God took my money. But truth speaks and says, where did you get your house? How did you receive your money? The man angry says, Well, by the sweat of my brow, I worked for these things. I built that house. I deserve these things. And truth responds the very breath in your lungs was sovereignly created by the grace of God. You do not even keep your heart beating, let alone the thousands of good and merciful gifts that have ultimately come from God. You think you did that yourself. You think by the sweat of your brow, you create food and provisions. You, God is sovereign over every single kind thing that has ever come to you. And it is a kindness that he does not owe you. Job acknowledges the righteousness of God by confessing when he came into the world, he came naked. Now, yes, literally, but he also means that poetically in the sense that he brought no possessions with him. He brought no money and naked I will return. Poetically, I bring nothing out of this world. Everything that I have in this world is entrusted to me by God. The Lord gave it. And the Lord has the right to take it away. The man angry at God says, God took my kids. But by the way, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, Job, all of Job's children died in one moment on one day. Imagine the depths of heartache from that. The man angry with God says, God unfairly took my children. But truth responds, you did not by your sovereignty and power create Those children, they were formed in the womb, and they were given life by the grace of God. And parents, our children are not ultimately ours. All souls belong to God. They are entrusted to us for a season, determined by God. Everything we have in this life, every possession, every grace... The spouse, the children, the house, it's all granted by God and mercifully given to us for a season that he determines. And we respond to difficulty rightly by worshipfully acknowledging the righteousness of God when he gives or even when he takes. But then Job follows that up with not only saying that God is righteous, but he goes further than that. He blesses the name of God. He confesses not only is God righteous, but God is good. He's good. He's sovereign. He's good. God does not just technically do what's right. He's good. He's kind. The name of God is worthy to be blessed. Well, the second passage, if you'll join me in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Give you a second to get there in verse four. We're going to read a passage very quickly there. Hebrews 12. 4 through 11, here's what we see. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And here's a quote from the Old Testament My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness." all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness now there are a number of points made in this passage that on other days we would study out more exhaustively but for us today asking the question how are we to respond to trials we see a couple answers given to us first though let's establish a truth that we need to know in order to understand the how we respond. The trials that we receive as Christians, and let me pause there for a semicolon there. The trials that those who ignore God endure. Let me try to make it specific. If you have not yet turned to Jesus Christ to be saved, if you have not yet turned away from your rebellion in order to come and receive forgiveness of sins, specifically knowing I need to be saved, turning to Christ in faith, if you have not done this, every trial that comes to your life, every pain, every difficulty, every suffering, you have to understand this. You don't have the sweet promises of what we're going to talk about. You don't have the promise that God is doing them for your good. In fact, They are foretastes of wrath. They are the preview of what will come to you in a more multiplied way in eternity if you continue to reject Christ. You must be saved, the Bible says. You have to have forgiveness of sins and it is only in Christ. What the Bible tells us is realize your need, look to Christ and trust him, call out to him and God will save you even right now in this moment. At that moment, you are brought into the grace of God, brought into this kingdom, brought into the family of God. Becoming sons and daughters. You are not a son or daughter of God simply by birth. You become sons and daughters at the moment of trusting in Christ. That's what John 1 says. So Christian, the trials that come to us are discipline from our father. Now, we also got to understand this part. Sometimes when we hear the word discipline, we think immediately like being spanked for doing a specific thing wrong. I don't believe that that's the way the Bible means this here. Now, of course, the Bible shows us that can happen. It can happen that Christians have a specific sin and God allows maybe some natural earthly kind of consequence uh, that comes to us um, because of that right there. Uh, here, Here is an example in 1 Corinthians 11. It mentions a time that at the church in Corinth, there were actually some believers who grew sick and some even died from profaning the Lord's Supper. Do you want to know why we take it so seriously? So that is a consequence, a discipline from a specific action. But the Bible shows us that more regularly, the discipline that comes to us as sons and daughters of God is not that kind, but it's the formative kind of discipline here's what that means parents who have children we understand that um, we have to train our children not to be lazy but to become hard workers they don't come out of the womb fully prepared okay Like that's our job to form and train certain things. So what do we do? Well, we give them chores. We regulate TV time. We regulate how much they're allowed to just lay around. Why are we doing this? That's not in reaction to some sin. That's forming. That's training. That's equipping. That's formative discipline. And Christian, you and I have a a, a multitude of different parts of our character that have to be formed by God, and God is doing this in many ways. The work of the word, what's happening right now is part of that. The studying of scripture, the worship, the seeking of God's face. You personally, as you seek God, as you read the word, memorize scripture, God's forming things, but another one of God's tools are trials and difficulties coming into our life. Even pain, pain suffering, and difficulty. The Bible calls this discipline. Look at verse seven. It is for discipline that you endure. Why does God still keep us here after we receive eternal life by turning to faith in Christ? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why why, when we get saved, why don't we just like instantly enter some season of glory where, all right, even if I got to be here, at least it's not painful. Why? Well, the Bible says in other places, you're here to be useful. You're here to serve. We're here to make the gospel go to the ends of the earth so every tribe, tongue, people, and nation hears the message of Christ. But you're also here for discipline. We're also here because God is forming things in us now that benefit us later, that bring us to greater glory in the kingdom. God is at work. In trials and suffering, this is one of his tools. And so since we're mentioning this, since we're talking about good things that God does, let me let me just give you a list. I think this is a pretty helpful list. Let me give you 14 things that scripture specifically says God is doing through our tribulations. Number 1. In trials and afflictions God is building your character. If you want to jot down Romans 5, 3 through 5 out to the side of that, we do not have time to go to all the passages so you can do this study on your own. Trials are to the soul what football practice is to the body. Lifting weights will make you strong. Two-a-days will make you tough. God is building character. And some of these specifics will come up as we look at this. Here's number two. In trials and afflictions, God is refining and purifying you he is bringing us to holiness. This passage in Hebrews 12 mentions that. Other places, Isaiah 48 uses the metaphor of silver being heated to the point of melting so that the impurities would float to the surface and then be scraped off. That's how silver would be refined. God uses that metaphor as a description of how the heat of afflictions boils our impurities to the surface and God cleanses us. Number three. In trials and afflictions, God is teaching patience and endurance. You can jot down James 1. Now, patience, don't think of patience only as like you're sitting in traffic and you try not to lose your mind, okay? That is patience. There are bigger kinds of patience. The North Korean believer who enters a labor camp and looks ahead at his life and thinks, I have decades here where I am going to be worked to death every single day. How does that guy keep going and not crumble? How does that guy keep going and keep delighting in God and not lose hope? That's patience. Enduring, steadfast, persevering, pressing on. And listen to me friends, you need endurance. There's only one way to get endurance. The only way a runner builds their endurance is by pushing their endurance. God is going to push us. God is going to push us to build perseverance. Number four, in trials, God is testing you. Again, James chapter one. Now understand some various things with this. In the same event, the same trial, God is testing while your enemy who hates you is tempting. The difference is in the intentions. Satan tempting you would be like a teacher handing you a test and he wants you to fail. He hopes you fail. He enjoys students failing. But God does not do that. God does not tempt, but God does test. The same event, but multiple things are happening. Who wins the battle depends on how we respond. When you took a test in school or you who are still there, what what does taking a test do? And I know there's that whole movement of like against tests and things. Tests have been used for thousands of years in human education. Bible uses it as an example. I'm not against it. What does a test do? Well, it shows the teacher where you are, shows other people where you are, like maybe your parents. What do you need to work on? and it shows you where you are friends when god sends us test he knows where we are but he is displaying where we are he is displaying to the angels and to the demons where we are and then also you and i see where we are when we go through a trial friends this is a time for some self examination how am i responding how am i doing Testing from God really is a pretty good revelation of the real health of our walk with God. Did we thrive through it? Or did we get sour? Did we get bitter? Did I slink into self-pity? Did I accuse God of wrong? Did I grumble and complain like Israel in the wilderness? Did I use it as an excuse to sin? Friends, how we respond in trials is revealing where we are in our walk with God. Number five, in trials, God is equipping you to be able to minister to others in their suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 is one of the places that talks about this. If you endure heartache, if you endure severe heartache, you are more able to minister to others in their need. And there's kind of a general way and also a specific way. There's a general way that those who have suffered much, those who have known intense heartache, they have a way that they're able to minister. They know the right things to say. They also know some of those things not to say. Those who, those who experience a loved one dying will say that after the funeral, there were a lot of things that people said to them that they, they were trying to be helpful. Like there were some good intentions, but what they said actually was very hurtful in the midst of that, it was unhelpful. Those who have known great heartache, they know what to say and what not to say. They're more useful. They're more effective in ministering to people in general. But then also when there is a specific kind of difficulty, there's a kind of camaraderie that those who have suffered in similar ways feel with each other. You Christians, What kind of heartache have you known that you are now able to minister to others in a way that the rest of us cannot because we've never gone through what you have gone through? God intends trials to be useful for you in being useful for others. Number six, God in trials uses it um, to make us more useful for service in general. The reason why all our Bible heroes endured severe trials before they were ever greatly effective is because you will never be useful without preparation. Joseph, Moses, David, the apostles, Paul, their suffering, their difficulties enhanced their ability to be useful for the kingdom of God. Christian, do you want to be useful? Hope the answer is yes. There will not be usefulness without preparation. Preparation comes in a lot of different ways. One of God's methods is sending us through difficulty. Number seven, in trials, God is helping to wean our hearts off of addiction to the world and making us groan for redemption. Romans 8, 19 to 26. Friends, you know how it is. We are naturally addicted to the world. We are naturally in love with this world. And even when we grow as a Christian, times of ease have a tendency to kind of draw us back into that love of money, that love of stuff, that that needing the flashy things, that addiction to comfort and ease. But there's something about pain that starts to make us groan. God wants us believers to groan for our home to come. Suffering works this. Number eight, suffering exposes the stupidity of trusting ourselves and makes us run to the Father. So many places we could look to for that. Psalm 90 is one you could jot down. Number nine, trials strengthen our faith. James 1, again, your faith is like a muscle. It has to be exercised in order to grow. How do you exercise the faith? It has to be strained. It has to be challenged. Particular questions, particular circumstances that, are, that, that we are vulnerable to challenge us and God uses this. Number, number 10, in a mystery, we get more of God through suffering. Philippians 3 speaks of this, your relationship with God will deepen in its intimacy if we respond rightly. Number 11, our sufferings are producing eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, that's that passage we've been referencing quite a bit here lately that these afflictions are light momentary afflictions and are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But one of the questions I ask there is, how? All right, so suffering is producing glory. How is it doing that? I believe the answer is the combination of all of these things. As God works in us, to form and purify, to make us like Christ, conform us to the image of Christ. The further along we get in that road, the more reward, the more honor, the more glory there will be. And also this, suffering provides opportunity to obey God in some very serious, difficult kinds of scenarios. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward Friends, Job has incredible reward in heaven and Job is glad everything God did, he brought about. Number 12, in our afflictions as a Christian, we share in Christ's suffering. That was our Bible study this past Wednesday night, sharing in Christ's afflictions. You can look into that more on your own if you weren't here. Number 13, in our struggles, God is displaying his power Through our weakness, I'll give a little more explanation on that here in just a moment, because the next point coming is from 2 Corinthians 12. That's where that comes from. And then lastly, number 14, also from 2 Corinthians 12, God used Paul's painful daily suffering, some thorn in the flesh, for the purpose of humbling him, for him to think rightly about himself. Pretty hard to exalt yourself, when your weakness stares you in the face every day. So those are all godly purposes that God is working in you through afflictions. And so this passage tells us we are to receive these from God. In a right kind of way, we are to receive them knowing this because he is doing these things. Knowing what God is doing enables us to receive it in the right kind of way. So this passage in Hebrews 12, look look what it says there in verse five. It says, do not regard God's discipline lightly. Do not faint as God does these things. Here's how the King James, I like how it renders verse five. Do not despise God's discipline. Don't hate what God is doing. Don't get angry about what God is doing. Don't get bitter at the circumstances. Don't get bitter at God. And then it says, don't faint. So don't let these difficulties make you give up. Don't let them do what our greatest temptation is. If you take those two things right there and you think about why are we told those? Well, those are the greatest temptations. When smack dab in your face, you are hit with some struggle, some suffering. What are we tempted to react like? For some it's anger. For some, the frustration is that sour, bitter, frustrated kind of attitude. For others, it's darkness. It's that slinking into self-pity. It's that despair. And what the Bible is telling us is resist those temptations. Let us respond in a right kind of way. And we can do that because we know what God is doing. And then watch this. So we're in Hebrews 12, we just read verses 4 through 11. Look at verse 12, the very next verse after this passage. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. There's a reason why, in passage after passage that talks about trials, difficulty, and suffering, and by the way, that's a lot. There are a lot of them from the Bible. There's a reason why so many of them, in the midst of that passage, will also say, Don't lose heart, don't grow weary rise up, strengthen the, the hands that are weak. Why do we need to be told that? Because that's the temptation. The temptation is to give up. That's what our enemy wants to do in us. He wants to incapacitate us. He wants us to feel so overwhelmed, so stressed out, so anxious, so depressed, so angry that we stop following him. We stop worshiping. We obsess on ourselves. We, we in anger quit or feel like we can't. And the Bible keeps calling us, take heart, take heart. These things are not in vain. Press on. We're told to receive this from the Lord. So what does that look like? Well, let me kind of review. Job 1, we saw responding rightly is worship, acknowledging the righteousness of God and acknowledging the goodness of God here's some other thoughts. It means acknowledging the loving motives of the father who ordains this and refusing to accuse him of ill motives. And let me kind of make a point with this as well. With everything, every one of these things that we're going to say of here's how we respond rightly, it is in opposition to a wrong way to respond. We, we have to comprehend When we are going through a severe affliction and your enemy is trying to incapacitate you, the Bible shows that Satan has the ability to suggest thoughts to our hearts. Now we don't recognize immediately that that's where it came from. Like we just know, I feel this. But he is gonna suggest all kinds of thoughts. But listen to me, every one of those things that he suggests is a lie that somehow contradicts a promise from scripture part of the work is identifying the thoughts in my head, what is of God and what is of the enemy. Test the spirits, scripture says. Not every thought that goes through your head is from God. We have to to examine, is what I'm thinking, does it match scripture? Is this the Holy Spirit leading my thoughts or is this the enemy? So, Responding rightly means acknowledging the loving motives of of the father and not accusing him of ill motives. It means believing that your father is doing this for your good and resisting those thoughts that Satan suggests of things like he is disgusted with you. Have you ever felt that? Man, what an incapacitating thought. I remember one particular season of going through some difficulty and I I never recognized it. I just had this thought within me that my difficulties are coming because God has just had enough of me. He is just so tired of me and all my sin and all my ridiculousness. He's just disgusted with me and that is an incapacitating thought and we have to recognize that contradicts the promises from my father in scripture. That contradicts his loving intentions for us. It means agreeing with God that I need this. It means submitting to the will of God dutifully. Responding rightly means thankfulness for God's work in your life. It means wanting God's purposes. And then in this section, I save the hardest one for last. It means because I see what God is doing, it means rejoicing. James 1, consider it, all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, and then he goes on to list some of these good things that we just looked at of what God is doing. First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Peter 4.12, listen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. There, we saw that. As though some strange thing were happening to you, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, there's another one of those purposes we saw. Here's what it says. Keep on rejoicing. This is a hard one to come to. This might be, this might be the highest rung of the ladder of maturity here. Like, Growth in Christ will mean that as difficulties come, we train ourselves to stop getting bitter or or to stop going to darkness and some of these kinds of things to to get ourselves to contentment. But rejoice? Are you serious? How? How do we rejoice in these things? We recall these 14 and other things that scripture tells us God is doing and, and others and we delight in the work that God is doing. We delight in the glory that is to come. This is a hard one to come to. But God intends to bring us here. Well, here's the third passage. And these last two are going to go much quicker. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12 with me, please. Second Corinthians 12. Second Corinthians 12, find verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, pause there for a second, Paul just got done explaining some visions of heaven that God had given him. He got to see glorious things. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me show you four aspects of how we respond to suffering from this passage. First, ask God to remove the pain. That's what Paul did. Ask God to heal. Ask God to change hearts. Ask God to do what only he can do to remove the affliction. Secondly, submit to the answer. In the Bible, we're shown God doing both kinds of things. We're shown sometimes where a believer is hit with a trial, they pray and they ask God, God's purposes were accomplished, God graciously removes the trial. We like those stories, but we also see the other kind as well. A believer is hit with suffering, they ask God to remove the trial and in God's perfect wisdom, he is still working things and God causes it to remain. We do not know which of those God will do, but we honor God both by the asking and by the submitting. Thirdly, trust God that if he gives the trial, he will give the grace to endure. Now, we are to ask and seek and knock for that grace, but God will supply the grace and his grace will be enough God will give us trials at times so severe that you cannot handle it. Find all those coffee mugs that say God will never give you more than you can handle and chuck them. It's a lie. God will give you more than you can handle. What he promises is grace to give you strength through it. And not just to survive, he promises grace to be able to thrive. Our job is to ask and seek and knock and rely on him and cry out for grace. But he promises grace. So listen to me, trust that he's going to. Sometimes the temptation and trial is, I'm not going to make it. I can't do this. And the answer is, you're right. You got the first part right. You can't do it, you loser. But God's grace will give you power and strength to make it through. Number four, boast in your weakness. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Boasts in your weakness. What does that mean? It means that I love this point. This is so good. Paul enjoyed telling people his weaknesses so that when people saw good that came out of his life, he wanted it to be obvious, this isn't my strength, this is God. That's a really important point. See, how many times do we see it In others, and also ourselves, that there's an inability to be transparent, an inability to admit faults, because maybe in our pride, we want to hide all of our weaknesses because we want people to think highly of us. let me tell you, this is one of the great temptations that pastors and church leaders face. We can have the temptation to pretend to be stronger and holier than we are, the temptation to to hide weaknesses because the the church leader can think to himself, well, you know, I got to appear strong so people want to follow me. Paul went the opposite direction. Paul said, I want to be open. I want to be honest. I want to be transparent about my weaknesses so that people will never think that I am strong. They will see that the reality is any good that comes out of my life, man, that loser didn't do it. God must have done it. Every good thing that comes out of our lives is by the grace of God. And Paul said, I want people to see that it's the grace of God. So I'm not going to try to appear strong. I'm going to be open about my weaknesses. Man, what a just complete reversal of worldly thinking. Let us boast in our weaknesses. Let us be open and honest about struggles so that we're not trying to appear stronger than we are. We rob God of glory. He could be getting And then lastly, number four, I'll go there quickly. Psalm 42, Psalm 42. And this is just a kind of example of many Psalms like this. Psalm 42, I'll read it quick. I'm trying to go quick here at the end for time's sake. Psalm 42, find verse three. Here's the context. My food, excuse me, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Jump to verse five. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his. Presence, meaning he says, I'm confident God's presence will come to me, and then I will glorify him that he gave me his presence. Verse 6, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls the deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Here's what he's saying. He, f- I feel like I've been dumped overseas and there's a storm, and I can't even catch my breath. As soon as one trial ends, I come up for air and another wave hits me. God, I feel like just one after another, after another, after another is hitting me. And then verse eight, here's how he follows it up. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Meaning I am confident that though I am being hit, God's loving kindness will Give me grace. His song will be with me in the night. Have you ever been in such a place of heartache you didn't feel you could sing? He says, God will give me grace so that I can sing. I will sing in worship and God will enable me to do that. A prayer to God, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And then here's his answer. Why are you in despair O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance. Your countenance is your facial expression. He's saying God will move me from a facial expression of depression and despair, and he will move me to gladness. The help of my countenance and my God. Here's the basic point. We respond, we must respond to trials by preaching truths to ourselves until our hearts are convinced and we are able to come to hope, to peace, to contentment, and to worship. You see this all through the Psalms. We see the worshiper, I love how raw and honest the Psalms are. Anxiety, fear. We see some Psalms where where the writer is sinfully angry. And I'm so glad the Bible included that. But then he shows the answer how he gets over his anger. But the Bible also shows us worshipers in depression. See, the Bible doesn't just accusatively say, as sometimes people say to those who are in darkness, well, you shouldn't. Thanks, that was helpful. That's like saying to somebody struggling with lust or with anger, well, you shouldn't. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. But that doesn't help me. The Bible addresses darkness, despair, depression, and I love how it does this. It speaks to us the hope of how to come out and in places like Psalm 42, it teaches us. It teaches us how to stand up and climb out of the slough of despond. The Psalmist here in 42 is in despair and we see him wrestle with himself. He fights with himself. In his weakness, he feels darkness, but in his spirit, he preaches to himself. Now, what does that mean? That expression, preach to yourself. It means to go get serious about spending time with God and you are determined to get your heart in the right place. You might take off to the lake and say, I'm not leaving until I'm okay. It means reminding yourself of the truths of God, the promises, all of this theology, plus more, Maybe you take a walk and you say these things to yourself, maybe out loud, maybe silently. It's not crazy, but you remind yourself, you reason with yourself. You are working to convince your heart. While we are believing lies of Satan, listen to me, that is doubt of the promises of God. And the battle is to bring my heart to believe the promises of God. And when I believe them, there is peace. There is hope. There can even be joy in the midst of those things. But it is not an easy battle to fight our way to come to fully believe the promises and understand them. You may take a walk and this is whenever you, you, you recite those passages that you've memorized and you've gotten ready because you know the Christian life is struggle. Places like Romans 8, Psalm 42, 2 Corinthians 4:16, Psalm 56. You read them, but you don't just read them one time because a lot of times we miss truths one time, but we read them five times, ten times, read them over and over, and we let the truths of God wash over us until I believe them and I'm okay. We let the truths of God change us. We cry out. We get honest one of the things I love about the psalms. They're so honest. The psalmists don't pretend to be godlier than what they actually are. When the psalmist is angry, he tells God, I'm angry. Help me. I'm frustrated. I'm in despair. God, help me. Come out of this. I know it's not right. I know I should be believing, but I'm not doing it. Help me. The psalms teach us to cry out to God, to ask those questions And the Bible shows us that we can come out of these, but the Bible never shows it to be an easy thing. It's a superficial and immature kind of belief to just say, well, you know, just read Psalm 42 and it'll all be okay. That's not real life. Real life is the darkness in me is heavy. The sinfulness and resistance to God, it's heavy. And it takes a work of God's grace. Friends, doubt is something to be warred against. We are not to passively allow ourselves to feel certain things. Boy, that goes against the message of the world. Can't help how you feel, how you feel is how you feel, and 40 other ways of saying it. The Bible says a lot of the ways that I feel are evil. So I'm not going to let myself stay there. We battle our way out. The Christian life is war and what is ironic is a great deal of the war is the war with our own hearts. I don't know who said it, but I think that it is a helpful statement. It's okay to be not okay, but it's not okay to stay there. God calls us to fight. God calls us to battle for hope, peace, worship, and joy to come to contentment. And when we do, the angels are watching, the demons are mocked, your God is pleased, reward comes, and glory is assured for us. Is God more precious to us than ease and comfort and even our life? And Christian, while we battle, the single most helpful message is the message that is always at the center of everything that we do here. It's the message of the son of God who left the glories of heaven to come and suffer on our behalf. You know, God has the right to call us to endure suffering, even if he had never done it. But I am so glad that Jesus came and did not come and live in an ivory tower, but a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Your high priest has suffered just like you have. Your high priest can sympathize with you. He didn't have to do that. I'm glad he did. You have one in the heavens who when we come and ask for grace, he knows exactly what kind of grace you need. And we can call out to him and he will give it. And if you have never turned to Christ for that first time to be saved, that is the first grace that you need. Call out to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe on him and you will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I ask. Please take these many, many truths that we have looked at and oh God, use them in our lives. I pray God even right now, but I also pray that this forms our thinking in such a way that in the future as we live the rest of this life, that we will be equipped to respond rightly. And I pray God that we will be useful to minister to others. Father, please give us your blessing as we leave. We love you and thank you for all of your grace, most especially for the grace of sending your son for salvation. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless you.
0: Thanks for listening. And we hope you were deeply impacted by Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, How to Respond to Suffering. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.